This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. If you or a loved one is struggling with drug or alcohol addiction and are serious about getting help, call us now at 855-820-2797. You can get clean and sober in as little as seven days. Your insurance company may cover 100% of all costs with little to no out-of-pocket expenses. Our trained addiction specialists are available 24-7 and all calls are free and confidential. Just call us at 855-820-2797. How much longer are you going to suffer with addiction? Let us find you the best treatment center that fits your unique needs. Call us now at 855-820-2797. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network. When it comes to American presidents, scholars and historians alike love to sing the praises of progressives like Franklin Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. FDR is continually voted one of our top five presidents ever, despite the fact that he actually prolonged the Great Depression by at least a decade, interning the Japanese Americans, and he increased the size of the federal government exponentially. Until recently, Wilson was also a perennial top 10 member. Even though he was known to be an extreme racist, he also interned American citizens. He broke his promise to keep America out of war. He instituted the federal income tax. I mean, who doesn't love that? And he began the Federal Reserve. And he had an open distaste for both the Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution. He was one of the worst presidents the United States has ever had. Inexplicably, these same scholars and historians always take a decidedly negative approach when assessing our 30th American president, Calvin Coolidge. There was a recent C-SPAN poll and Coolidge ranked just 27th, hardly awe-inspiring. Yet his presidency actually was I'm going to go over the details of what made him a much better president than he was given credit for on upcoming episodes. But first, let's start at the beginning. Appropriately, Calvin Coolidge was born on our nation's 96th birthday, July 4th, 1872. He was born in Plymouth Notch, Vermont. Amity Schles of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation, friend of the program, one of the best authors out there, author of the must-read book, The Forgotten Man, and the book Coolidge, describes young Calvin's early years. Coolidge was from a wonderful family, and the family had a lot of depth. So the Coolidges had a commitment to public life, to service, and to going into government. Sadly, Coolidge's childhood was stricken by tragedy when his mother died. Calvin was only 12 years old. And his only sibling, his younger sister, passed away when he was 18. He almost didn't make it to teen years. He was kind of a sickly boy. He almost didn't make it into college. He had to stay out a year. He almost didn't make it as an attorney in Northampton when he started his career. He almost didn't find a wife. And yet each time he succeeded. So he's a very inspiring fellow because he was not a huge standout. He was not number one in his class. He was not the guy everybody loved. And yet he prevailed through sheer hard work. 
As historian and author of the book Calvin Coolidge, a documentary biography, David Petruza explains, most didn't see the potential in the younger Calvin. Calvin Coolidge is is not exactly the most likely to succeed, even in college, even as a young man, um, even for a 19th century Vermonter. He's taciturn, withdrawn. He's not courted by any of the fraternities at school. His uh, associate Dwight Murrow is. He will become eventually Coolidge's ambassador to Mexico. No one thinks much of Calvin Coolidge's chances except for Morrow, who does see something in Coolidge. Because if you look beyond the silent exterior, you see a very solid interior. And when he runs for office, when the people take a look at what Coolidge has to offer, they know this is a person they can trust. This is a person who is not going to pander to them. And he is going to work for their best interest as a whole, not necessarily for special interest, but for rising up the country and the economy as a whole. Turns out Dwight was right. It really is hard to get more successful than the president of the United States, especially at that time. Most of these traits that Dwight Morrow recognized were instilled in a young Calvin by his father, who was honest and hardworking. John Calvin Coolidge, Sr. He was known throughout Vermont as a prosperous farmer, a storekeeper, and a public servant. More from Amity Schlaes. In some families, people are just expressions of the family. You know, the son is the father's ambassador, or the other way. The Coolidges were like that. Coolidge ended up graduating cum laude from Amherst with a law degree. He opened up his own practice in 1898, and along the way, Coolidge became interested in a political career. Well, that same year, he won the election to the Northampton City Council. Later, he was elected to the offices of city solicitor and clerk of courts. Now, as the clerk of courts, he wasn't allowed to practice law, so he stayed in his office for just a year. And instead, in 1904, he ran for a position on the school board, suffering the only loss at the ballot box of his political career. He was told by several neighbors that the reason they didn't vote for him for the office was that he didn't have any children who would be going to the schools in which he would govern. To that, Coolidge replied, You might give me some time. In fact, starting a family would be just around the corner for Coolidge, as Petruza explains. Calvin Coolidge is a young bachelor attorney in Northampton, Massachusetts. And one day he is shaving and Grace Goodyear walks by and sees this young fellow uh, shaving. But he's shaving in a sort of odd way. He's wearing a derby hat for some reason as he's doing this. And she looks up and bursts into laughter. And he looks down, and instead of being annoyed by that, he knows a good thing or a good woman when he sees one and determines that he is going to court her. And while he is not the most overtly courtly courting kind, he certainly succeeds in um, his courtship with her, and they will marry not too long afterwards. In 1905, Coolidge married Grace Ann Goodhue. The couple had two children, John, who was born in 1906 and who, believe it or not, lived long enough to see the beginning of the presidential campaign between Al Gore and George W. Bush in 2000, and Calvin Jr., who, just at 16 years old in a bizarre twist of fate, developed a simple blister on his toe. 
This will make you appreciate modern-day medicine. That blister became infected, and he died of blood poisoning. And the loss was devastating to Calvin and his wife. In 1906, he ran for and was elected to the Massachusetts House of Representatives. Ironically, at this time of his life, Coolidge was known as a progressive Republican, mostly over his support for women's right to vote and direct election of the senators. He served two terms in the House before returning home to spend more time with his family and, while there, was elected twice as the city's mayor. During his first term as mayor in Northampton, he increased teachers' salaries and paid down much of the city's debt while still managing to provide residents with slight tax decreases. His conservative policies paid huge dividends his entire career, and Coolidge became more and more popular. So much so that when the state senator from his area retired, he went to Coolidge to encourage him to run for his seat in the 1912 session. Coolidge agreed and won the seat easily. So now, here he is, at the time of Wilson, in the Senate. And after two very successful terms in the state Senate, Coolidge was ready to retire, as was the custom of the time. But the president of the Senate was defeated in his election, so he decided to run for a third term. He won the seat again. And as Petruza explains, Coolidge won more than that. Coolidge has done all this work with his fellow legislators. Within 24 hours, he has sewed up the votes to be the next Senate president. And he has, beyond the Republicans voting for him, he has a good share of the Democrats. The next year, when he's re-elected for the Senate, he is elected unanimously. Every Democrat in the House votes for him. He has... He has a way of reaching out to Democrats and to Catholics and to the Irish, which are, of course, so important in Massachusetts politics. Coolidge was riding really high in Massachusetts politics, and in 1914, as Senate president, he delivered this popular and very memorable speech to the state and his colleagues, entitled, Have Faith in Massachusetts. Do the day's work. If it be to protect the rights of the weak, whoever objects, do it. If it be to help a powerful corporation better to serve the people, whatever the opposition, do that. Expect to be called a stand patter, but don't be a stand patter. Expect to be called a demagogue, but don't be a demagogue. Don't hesitate to be as revolutionary as science. Don't hesitate to be as reactionary as the multiplication table. Don't expect to build up the weak by pulling down the strong. Don't hurry to legislate. Give administration a chance to catch up with legislation. The speech propelled him to new heights and caught the interest of power brokers in the state and around the nation, some of whom believed he was now ready to run for lieutenant governor or even governor. Coolidge was convinced that this was the time to aim even higher, and he entered the primary election for lieutenant governor. He was nominated to run alongside gubernatorial candidate Samuel W. McCall. 
Coolidge was the leading vote-getter in the Republican primary, and in 1915, the pair were elected to their first one-year term. They won again in 1916-17, and when McCall stepped aside in 1918, Coolidge ran for governor on a platform of fiscal conservatism, lukewarm opposition to prohibition, support for women's suffrage, and support for America's involvement in World War I. Now, the war at the time was a hugely divisive issue for him, especially among the Irish and German Americans, which may have been the reason that Coolidge was elected only by a margin of 16,733 votes over his opponent. That was his smallest margin of victory in any statewide election. So here he is as governor, waiting to rise to national prominence. His time came when he had to crush a police strike. It happened in Boston, and he took on the powerful and legendary AFL president Samuel Gompers in the process. Coolidge took strong and decisive steps from the start of the strike, relieving the police commissioner of his duties. He then called in the National Guard, and he personally took control of the police force. Once order was restored, he placed the police commissioner back in his position and then fired every single striking officer. Coolidge then put out the call for an entirely new police force. When I first read this, I thought, boy, this sounds like what Ronald Reagan did to the striking air traffic controllers uh, back in his term. It's probably not a coincidence in seeing that Ronald Reagan's favorite president was Calvin Coolidge. When Gompers attempted to enforce his will on the situation, firing off a protesting telegram to Coolidge, the popular governor responded publicly, emphatically stating, in part, There is no right to strike against the public safety by anyone, anywhere, anytime. I am equally determined to defend the sovereignty of Massachusetts and to maintain the authority and jurisdiction over her public officers where it has been placed by the Constitution and laws of her people. Sound like Reagan? Calvin Coolidge became an instant national conservative hero. They had found someone finally, they believed, that if necessary, could stand against the red scare of communism that had gripped the country in light of the recent revolutions in Russia, Hungary, and in Germany. Again, doesn't that sound an awful lot like Ronald Reagan, who, coincidentally, when Coolidge was president, Ronald Reagan was a young man. The stage was now set for Calvin Coolidge to realize his full potential. In 1920, destiny would come calling, literally, on the phone. We tell that story next time. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network. Hey, I want to talk to you a little bit about the trouble that I have sometimes with my son and my daughter. They love the Internet, as I do. The Internet is an incredible resource, educational, social, recreational. It's all good, except it's not all good. Some of it is real bad. And it can show up on your kid's screen when you least expect it. So how do you as a parent handle it? I want to tell you about Hero Parental Control. It's the most comprehensive family Internet solution available. And the activity from all of your family's devices can be filtered, can be monitored, and even tracked via GPS from a dashboard on your phone or your iPad. Material that may be healthy for a teen can be harmful to a young child, and so you need to have the perfect protection level from toddler to teen to mom and dad. One of the most important steps to a safer internet in your home is recognizing this is a really big 
big issue. Hero gives you the power to create a protected and nurturing online environment. There's nothing like it. Try Hero. Block the bad. Choose what's good for your family. Visit blazehero.com. That's blazehero.com.